0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, May 13th, 2019. I'm Caleb Brown. At the Cato Institute's Benefactors Summit in April, Kentucky Junior Senator Rand Paul detailed some of the reasons why fears of so-called judicial activism are overblown and why he believes a philosophy of liberty needs constant renewal. This is a portion of his remarks. So thanks to Roger and Randy Barnett, And those who have talked a lot about judicial engagement, I go to Heritage. And I'm over at Heritage. (laughs) I'm at Heritage. And I have about 150 young conservative kids. And so I like a challenge. I like to tilt at windmills. And I said, How many people believe in judicial restraint? Everyone raised their hand. So then I had a, a board and I decided I'd do the little chalkboard thing. And I said, Well, let's look at some of the Supreme Court decisions of the last 100 years and find out which side you would be on if you were for less government, limited government, or whether you're conservative. Lochner, I think it's clear, it's a yes. The court did overturn states that were interfering with contracts on minimum wage or hours that can be spent. So that was an activist court. Most libertarians are a yes. Now there are a couple conservatives still confused about Lochner. (laughs) But the libertarians are generally a yes overturning Jim Crow laws. Libertarians are a yes, but that's judicial. I, I'd just say activism, but that's judicial engagement. That's the court saying to the state, you can't have racial segregation. So Lochner, judicial uh, segregation. What comes next? Big, big period of time, the Great Depression. What happens for the first five years of the Great Depression? The Supreme Court, judicially engages and tells congress hell no everything you're doing is unconstitutional it was an engaged an active court overturning unconstitutional law until fdr stayed longer and longer and longer and finally the court was his and then the second <laughs> half of the 30s guess who was restrained the progressives frankfurter and all these guys they became judicial restraint but they were all very progressive let the government do whatever it wants so really you do want a judiciary People say, oh, we don't want them to be legislators. No, but we want them to at least say there is are some rules that came in the Constitution. You can't do certain things. So you go on, you go further. Griswold, can states ban birth control? Most of us say that's a crazy, stupid idea. And yet, there are still some conservatives who say wrongly decided they should have restrained themselves and let Connecticut do whatever they want with birth control. That's crazy. We do believe there are national rights, natural rights, that the court should engage themselves with. Then you get the coup de gras, Obamacare. Did anybody raise your hand if you liked the Obamacare decision? <laughs> so what is the Obamacare decision based on? What is the maxim that uh, Roberts puts forward in the end? Judicial restraint. We should restrain ourselves. He says if there is any way we can imagine that this law could be constitutional. If there's any way we can twist our brain into believing (laughs) that it's a tax and not a regulation, even though we know the government is not arguing that it's a tax, we must imagine it so. And he quotes Oliver Wendell Holmes, the other famous judicial restraint justice. And he says, hands off, we'll let the government do what they want. And it's like, I didn't make the kids vote again. I wanted to, but I was afraid to see what would happen with the vote. But I think people are changing. Even though I'm not a lawyer, I just kind of pretend like I know something about the law. It is interesting to watch the debate in the Federalist Society. And it's really much more of an even debate now on this and has had great uh, champions like Roger through the years. And I'll get to the second part about Roger in a minute. I have to think Roger's gonna come back into the speech here in just a minute. But um, let's see, has to do with dancing. And I didn't even know Roger was such a dancer. I mean, to imagine a dancer that's like an Indian god. <laughs> mm-hmm. Do you have your own little icon or anything? That, like an Indian god with multiple arms. But, you know, I guess the thing that I was imagining, though, with the multiple arms, anybody ever seen that episode on Seinfeld when Elaine's dancing? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I've never seen Roger dance, but that's kind of what I was thinking. (laughs) So Jefferson wrote that the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time. And some people blanch at it because he said, you know, with the blood of patriots and tyrants. Well, I don't think it always has to be refreshed with uh, blood. You know, in fact, many of us are those who wish we had much less war and uh, really aren't advocating armed insurrection yet. And so... How do we how do we refresh the tree? How do we water the tree of liberty? Well, to me, I think there's sort of long run and short run. I think the long run is what you're all involved here with Cato. I think in the long run, it is about ideas. It's, it's incredibly important, and I think we win on ideas. I think we have been winning for a long, long time on ideas. I think you can go back to the 19th century and the, the terrible ideas of Marx that came about the inevitability of this clash, this struggle, this class struggle that would wind up in this worker's paradise. It was tamped down by the Austrian economists. The theories were blown up. The idea that socialists could calculate was was destroyed by the free market economists. It permeated its way throughout the universities. We still don't win all the battles. We're a minority, but we've had great success. We get to modern times, and the ideas of free trade have taken off throughout most of the universities, other than the White House. But uh, free trade is pretty well accepted by most economists as being something that is good for, for the majority. There's also the short run. So there's the Cato, think tanks, Heritage, others for the long run. But in the short run, there are other alternatives. How do we, how do we water the tree of liberty in the short term? And the way I th- see it is that there, there's ideas that are the long term, they influence sort of the short run, but the short run is politics. And so while, you know, sure you should support Cato, don't forget there are people you should support as well. (laughs) But the thing about politics that I think we need to be alarmed with is we now see that, this is where Roger comes kind of back into this, we now see that politics is being influenced by a winning smile and clever dance steps, beautiful young woman who, I'm not sure what she has to say, but she's, she's attractive in so many ways. She's winsome. And she can dance. And I guess I was thinking, what's one problem Cato has? I, I thought y'all couldn't dance. I was, I was ready to come here tonight. And that was my line to say that, Cato, you've got to learn to dance. You've got to learn to smile. You've got to bring music. And then Peter's talking about Grateful Dead. And I'm thinking, well, they're not as unhip as you might think. <laughs> um, but I think we do need to be concerned. And we shouldn't write it off and say, oh, the things she's saying don't make sense even though they don't make sense. We should argue on the facts, but we also have to argue, I think, and we have to present our ideas and make them accessible to people, particularly to young people. And so we can win the academic arguments. We can win the scholarly arguments. We have to keep doing that. But we also have to figure out how to get our message you know, by video. Or now we have Roger that will be leading the new dance steps for Cato's message. I'm thinking short YouTube videos with judicial engagement and dance. What do you think? There you go. OAC's got nothing on you. I think that uh, there really could be a lot going on with that. But I think the reason we have to be concerned is, one, she's engaging. She's attractive. She's got 4 million followers after three months, and we can't discount that. But the reason we can't discount it is not that we are fearful of celebrity or that there's anything so awful about her being a celebrity, it's what she's talking about. It's the ideas of socialism. It's the ideas that really seem not to have remembered what happened in socialism in the last century, seem not to have remembered the genocide associated with socialism. And so we've become so concerned with this that Kelly and I have been working on a book for the last couple of months called The Case Against Socialism. There probably won't be one idea in there that hasn't been presented by Cato scholars and others, but we're gonna to try to make it accessible and bring it back because it, it is like Jefferson's uh, admonition. Every generation, you've gotta renew, you gotta water that tree of liberty. You gotta bring those ideas back and you gotta make them accessible to people. We're gonna tell some of the stories, put names and faces. We tell the story of a, uh, a uh, Jewish poet by the name of Osip Mandelstom, who was put in a camp and eventually died. We tell his story, and uh, is a great little poem he writes about Stalin about his whiskers being long enough to polish uh, his boots. And it's, you know, but he, he didn't think anything sort of a, it was like hugging raspberries or something to see people die, you know, that were killed in the pogroms. But the thing is, people need to know these stories, and they need to know. They also need to know that Hitler was a socialist. People say, well, we fought that forever. We lost that. Everybody thinks the Nazis were capitalists. The National Socialist Party, they were socialist. But we have to have this debate over what is socialism, because what does AOC and Bernie say? They loved uh, Chavez, and they loved Venezuela, but they don't now. No, no, that's not the kind of socialism I'm talking about. Some of you may remember people went to Stalin's Russia in the 30s and they came back praising it. So there have been people throughout time who have willfully looked the other way. But we have to counter those arguments. And when people begin to eat their pets, maybe there's a problem. There's a story that we tell in the book of a Chinese... official who's sent out to this small town. There's famine. This is like night, during the Great Famine, 1958 to 1960. And he goes into the community, and uh, he's been told that uh, the dogs are eating. The bodies are lying in the street, and the dogs are eating uh, the bodies. And he calls back, and he's very forthright. He, he tells his superiors, it's absolutely not true. The dogs were eaten long ago. Socialism doesn't work. But there is a question, though, whether or not socialism is inherently violent or whether it's accidentally violent. Was Stalin an aberration or an anomaly? Was uh, was, was Hitler an anomaly or an accident? You know, Pol Pot, Mao, were these just accidents? Do we just keep getting accidents? Chavez, does just somehow they keep popping up? But there's a great uh, article by uh, George Reisman that we refer to in the book where he says, um, you know, Nazism is socialism, and socialism is totalitarianism. And he sort of explains why if you're going to take property, if you take a little bit, you may not be completely socialist, and it doesn't need to be as violent. If I'm just going to take a little bit of your property, let's say I'm just going to take 50% of your income through taxes, I might be able to do that by threatening to put you in prison. So there's the threat of violence, but if I want to take it all, if I want to take all of your property it's going to take a certain amount of ruthlessness because people will resist. And so what kind of leader is selected for when a government decides to take all the property? When you want complete socialism, when all the means of production will be owned by the government, what kind of government does that take? It takes a ruthless leader. So maybe Stalin is the apotheosis of the perfect socialist leader. Because if you're going to take all of the property, and they say, oh, no, no, they say, that's not what we want at all. We want Scandinavian socialism. We want democratic socialism. It's all about, it'll be kinder and gentler. And I say, oh yeah, well, Jim Crow was, was democratic too. Do you like Jim Crow? Oh no, no, no. We would We want Scandinavian socialism. But I think Hayek had a good response to this. Hayek, the perfect answer to the socialists who say, we'll make socialism fine and dandy. We'll make it kinder, more gentler socialism. His answer was this. Hayek said, there is no justification for the widespread belief that so long as the power is conveyed by democratic procedure that it cannot be arbitrary. It is not the source of the power which prevents it from being arbitrary. To be free from dictatorial qualities, the power must be limited. And I think it's a great way of putting it because We have this big argument now with them. The big argument with them is that if the majority vote for it, it's good, it's gotta be good. I think they need to be reminded, and it goes a little bit back to the judicial engagement argument, is that majority's not always right. In fact, when the school kids come to my, we take pictures and I have five minutes, no matter what grade they are, I say, are we a republic or a democracy? Because I want them to know the difference. I want them to know that a constitutional democracy protects your freedom from the majority. And that it's incredibly important that we know we're not a democracy. And it's incredibly important that we not give up our rights to the majority. It's also important that our founding fathers were smart enough to divide up the power so it wouldn't all wind up in one place and to make it a supermajority if they wanted to take any of your rights that were spelled out. Incredibly important. When we look at their, their promise that we're going to have democratic socialism, we also hear them say, Scandinavia, it's Scandinavia. This is, this is really what we want. Although if you read the people who keep writing about it, including the young man I just met from Sweden, it's like, but we're not socialist. <laughs> Murray Rothbard was once asked by, uh, he asked Mises in one of the lectures, he said, if there was one thing, one quick thing, one absolute thing that you need to have to have capitalism, what would it be? And he thought it would be a complicated, convoluted answer. And Mises said, it's simple, a stock market. Buying and selling, having, having the trade of goods, freely fluctuating prices, a stock market. If you look at Scandinavia, they've had, I think Sweden's had one since 1850 or something, or 1840, even before that. But you look at the other countries, most of them have had stock markets for 100 years or more. They have private property. By some measurements, people measure they have more private property ownership than we do. Norway is an exception because they have a big sovereign fund for their oil, but mostly invested in private stocks and mostly managed by private managers. But the thing is, first argument is they want the socialism of Scandinavia. They're not socialist. But there is a secondary argument that we do need to address, because this is their big argument and they're going to win. And this is an an argument that we need to push back on. Their argument is, well, they have all this free stuff. So we want this free stuff too. Maybe we don't want the the means of production to be owned by everyone. Although if you read the Democratic Socialist of America website, they do. They just kind of soft pedal it, but they really do want ownership by the workers of the means of production. But if you look at these places, they are welfare states. Sorry, Sweden. But they are big, they are big welfare states. But here's the big lie, and this is the big lie in one sentence that we have to combat. What do the Democrats say or the Democratic Socialists say? They say, we'll get it. We'll get all this free stuff, free college, free paid leave, free everything, but we're going to get it by just taxing those rich people. Alexandria ocasio course, said it recently. She said, 70% tax on those who make more than $10 million. Well, someone did the math, and apparently it's $50 billion. Sounds like a lot of money, but you know what their proposals for spending are? $50 trillion. <laughs> $50 billion comes in, $50 trillion goes out. Oh, that's the way we always do things here. What's the difference? <laughs> Here's the problem. We can't even narrow it down to a couple trillion. It's either $50 trillion or $93 trillion, somewhere in the range of that. But it's a big number. But the big lie is there's not enough money from rich people. And if you look at the Scandinavian model, actually what they've done is the opposite of what most of the socialists want here. They've had lower corporate taxes for a long time. Sure, they flirted with socialism, they've backed away quite a bit. In fact, they don't like the label. Most of them don't. The Danish rebel out of it, the Swedish rebel out of it. They don't want to be called, it's bad for business. Are any of you going to invest over there if you think it's a socialist country? But here's what they do do. It's not just taxing the rich. Everybody is taxed overwhelmingly, 25% sales tax on everybody. And in Denmark, at least, it's a 60% tax on income starting at 60000 So the big lie that we have to refute for these people is, sure, you want free stuff, you can have it, but you can't just tax the rich people. you got to tax the heck out of everybody. And so if the American people need to be told, you want the free stuff. Here it comes. 25% sales tax and a 60% income tax starting at 60,000. At 60,000 in our country you're paying almost nothing in income tax. Ours is very very progressive. The top 1% in our country pay 40% of the income tax. The top 10%, which is about 200,000 above, it's now over 80% of the income tax. 75,000 and above in our country is like 98% of the income tax. We have a very progressive system. In fact, we keep dropping people off the rolls. What we have would never work. And you can't tax rich people. You can't tax rich people 100%. Besides, they might quit working at some point. <laughs> or they might move to Sweden. Who knows? You know. But here, the thing is, it doesn't work. And it is the big lie. And the big lie is you can't just tax the rich people. you got to tax everybody. So let's be honest about this and say that if you want this, you're going to have to tax the middle class. Kelly always brings up, well, why, do, you know, why are they so thin over there, and why do they all ride bikes? You know how to, to get a car? you got to pay a 200% tax. If the car's $30,000, before you get the car out the door, you got to pay $60,000 plus the $30,000. That's why nobody's got a car over there, although it does i them pretty fit. But it's also pretty cold to ride a bike in Sweden, I think. <laughs> We wonder how we protect ourselves and how we continue on. The other example, and uh, I think if I can pronounce the name right, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Sandaji? Yeah. Is that how you say it? Correct. He is, uh, I think, of Iranian extraction, but he's Swedish, and he works for one of the think tanks over there, wonderful statistics and wonderful stuff. And he talks about the tax problem, talks about the right-left, this and that in Sweden. But then there's a, a bigger talk of, of just culture. And there's always this danger of bringing up culture that you're somehow there's some sort of racial undertones or overtones to what you're talking about. But something's different about the Scandinavians. And it's kind of like another Jerry Seinfeld episode. He says, well, you know, I really like, uh, I won't say what race it is, I really like this race of people. And it's like, is it wrong to like people that are of a certain race? <laughs> So the Swedish do pretty well, and so one of these smug, well, we won't call them Swedish because we have some Swedish here, was a smug Scandinavian economist one time went up to Milton Friedman and he said, we have no poverty in Scandinavia. And Milton Friedman looked at him and responded, he says, we have no poverty either among Scandinavian Americans. (laughs) Mm. And it's interesting, it's true, if you measure all the different Scandinavians, Norwegians, Denmark, Swedish, you measure them when we come over here, sure, they're doing great in their country. Standard of living's pretty well compared to our average. They're actually way above our average here once they move here. A hundred years later, Scandinavian Americans are doing well. And it's, I don't think it's a, and this is the danger of talking about culture. People think it's, oh, you're saying, and they're not better than us because my family's not from Sweden, so y'all aren't better than us. But... (laughs) But the thing is, is there something about culture, about work ethic or family or church that is important? I think there is probably. And it's like if we completely discount that and we back away and say you can't talk about any of those things because it's touchy, no, we probably ought to look and understand you know, why, they, why they've done so well. But when we look to our country, I guess what I worry about is people have talked about this for a long time. They say, well, what happens when the majority finally discovers that they can vote largesse from those who are working? When the non-workers outnumber the workers, when the people in the wagon outnumber the people pulling the wagon, what when they discover that they can vote to take away the wealth from those who are working? What happens? And, you know, when we get to that point, Fortunately, our founding fathers were, were pretty good at designing a system that makes it hard to go one way or the other. Earlier, somebody asked me about the legislative filibuster. It's incredibly important because it slows things down. I mean, what if in 2020 there's a big reaction to the current president and we get Bernie Sanders, you know, and, and they get both houses? You know, the, the chance that they get to 60, though, in the Senate is small. 41 of us could stop the socialist agenda. So I think the filibuster is incredibly good. It's anti-majoritarian. But it gets back to this idea of, do you want a democracy or a republic? The idea that it's, you know, fortunately we got, really we got, I like to tell some of the conservatives that don't agree with this, we got an infinite amount of rights You know, and I had this discussion with Scalia one time, and he wasn't very happy with me. You know, I said, well, the Ninth Amendment says, you know, that the rights not listed are not to be disparaged. And he said, who's disparaging anybody's rights here? (laughs) And I was like, well, but that's the point. The The rights aren't limited. You don't just have a few of them. You've got innumerable rights. And that's why I don't think it's an activist judge to defend these rights. It really should be the government having to define what powers it has. And if it didn't give the government the power to do something, it's yours. Unless they abbreviated your right through a power, all of these are left to you. We're very lucky we got that through the Constitution. And I think it still works to a certain extent. I think almost nobody on the Hill obeys it. You know, almost none of your elected officials. But Dad used to say there were two arguments that will never listen to you in Washington, a moral argument and a constitutional argument. <laughs> And I think there is some truth to that. So we, we need more people in Washington who, who do care about the Constitution. But I think it's still worse to a certain extent. I think there are, you know, is this movement for originalism or textualism or what have you. And I think that it is, a, it is a good movement. And there still are people who believe enough in the structure of this. But there's some people who believe that there's absolutely no structure. Talk about a living Constitution. They really don't believe there's any kind of constitutional restraint. We just kind of do what the majority wants. There's a big danger to that. And so there's these different intellectual traditions, and we have to keep them going if we want to keep the country. But it's understanding that majority rule is not always a good thing. People, What else do they they want to get rid of? They want majority rule. They want popular vote in the election. One of the cool things our our founding fathers gave us was geographically, two senators in Kentucky, we get the same vote as two in California. If you're from California, too bad. (laughs) But... That, that sort of geographic spreading of the vote is not making it directly proportional to population at all. So it was this thing for geographic unanimity, but it was also a good thing because it, it kind of changes up the flow of things. So does the Electoral College. If we don't have the Electoral College, and sometimes I'll meet populists, conservatives, who say, oh, yes, we want to get rid of the Electoral College also. It's not right. We should do popular vote. They'll campaign in ten cities. Ten cities will elect it. We already are kind of getting to that point in states where four or five big cities are really dominating the entire vote. And really, when you look at the red-blue map, and I know Republicans aren't always better than Democrats, but some of are not as bad as Democrats, is that if you look at the red-blue map, red maps almost all rural areas. You know, We have a rural party and an urban party now. It's also the answer to how the Republican party could be more dominant is pay more attention to the cities and the problems we have in our cities. Cities have been run by Democrats for decades and they're a disaster. Look, Chicago's the murder capital of the world. It's a disaster, all of the problems they've got there. They just had elections of the other day. They elected five democratic socialists. The socialists are beating the Democrats in Chicago. And I can see how they'd be unhappy with the Democrats, but I'm not so sure how electing socialists is gonna make their life any better. But we're lucky that we have a Republican, not a democracy. And I'll finish with this. Goldwater, in the Conscience of the Conservative, wrote about uh, people coming up, and he says, if I am accused of neglecting my constituents' interests, I will tell them that I was informed that their chief interest is liberty. And in that tradition, in that vein, in that cause, in that cause of liberty, I will continue. It's not about passing legislation. It's not about transferring wealth. It's not about enormous government coddling you from, from cradle to grave. It's about protecting liberty. And we all get caught up, sometimes entrapped, in what legislation are you going to pass? And what are you going to do? What are you going It's about defending liberty. It's about an abstraction. But it's an incredibly important abstraction that I think you who support Cato realize. I hope you will continue that tradition, and I'll be there right alongside you. Thank you very much. Rand Paul is the junior Republican U.S. Senator from Kentucky. Subscribe to the Cato Daily Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.